I do think that in a broad sense, the American anti-war movement helped end the war in Vietnam. And, you know, there are some people who think that there were the good activists, you know, the peaceful people marching on the streets and then the bad activists who were, you know, doing more violent actions. I don't really see it that way. I think the Black Panthers, the Weather Underground, the Black Liberation Army were on the extreme edge of a vast and powerful movement that was fighting to end an unjust war in America. And I think all of the activists involved in that, the peace activists and the radical activists, can take some credit for ending that war. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Zaid Ayers Dorn was born underground. His parents, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, were leaders of the Weather Underground, the militant group that formed in 1969 to ignite a revolution in the U.S. and fight American imperialism and racism, sometimes violently. The group organized bombings of the U.S. Capitol, the Pentagon, and the Department of State to bring attention to their cause. The only fatalities were three members of the Weather Underground itself, who died in 1970 while making bombs in a Greenwich Village townhouse. Zaid Erzdorn spent the first five years of his life on the run underground with his parents. He tells the story of the Weather Underground in a riveting and award-winning 10-part podcast, Mother Country Radicals. Dorn is a playwright and professor at Northwestern University. Here's a trailer for Mother Country Radicals. In 1970, a 28-year-old recent law school graduate became the most wanted woman in America. Angela Davis was replaced on the FBI's 10 most wanted list this afternoon by Bernadine Ray Dorn, described as an underground leader of the weathermen. They said she was an enemy of the state. Within the next 14 days, we will attack a symbol or institution of American injustice. A homegrown terrorist. A bomb exploded early this morning in the Pentagon. J. Edgar Hoover called her the most dangerous woman in America. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. She's also my mother. What's it like having me do this kind of research into your past? It's wonderful that you're interested even, um, but um, it scares me. I'm Zaid Ayers-Dorn, host of the new podcast, Mother Country Radicals, and I was born underground. When I was growing up, my parents were on the run from the FBI, at war with the U.S. government. Maybe they had the ability to assassinate the president. Maybe they could blow up Congress and kill congressmen, important congressmen. Last night we destroyed the pig again. This time it begins a fall offensive. That was a powerful idea that there were these white people who really wanted to support uh, the black liberation movement. It was hard for me to understand as a kid why my parents and their friends were willing to risk their lives, even their children, to try to change this country. I was determined to not have being a mother stop me from also being a revolutionary. But I wanted to understand. I felt like I needed to. Especially now, when it seems like history is repeating itself. This past weekend, 10-year-old Clifford Glover was shot to death by a policeman. They were the occupying army. They were the ones that were murdering black men, women, and children. I thought I knew my family's story. But the more I looked... I know some things that I can't tell you. I don't think I want to go there. Oh, uh, no, I'm not going to talk about that. Sorry. I found secrets, some that are uncomfortable. So much experimentation with sex, sex with women, sex with men, sex in orgies. Others that are still painful, even dangerous. We were all terrified, and none of us knew what we were doing. Did you ever take part in actions after I was born while you were still underground? Well, I was involved in... A few things, and um, one of them was, in fact, a, a jailbreak. This is the story of how my family came together. The person at the other end of the phone said, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but you're pregnant. And how they blew themselves apart. People are starting to bang on the door and start screaming. A lot of people who do illegal things, you know, see everything working out well. Yeah, I have a problem at Nanuet National in the mall. Our armored truck was shot at. I never thought something was going to go wrong. That was the trailer for Mother Country Radicals, a new 10-part podcast about the weather underground told by Zaid Ayers Dorn, whose parents were leaders of the radical group. 
I began my conversation with Dorn, who is 45, by asking him why he chose to tell this story now. I think it was a it was a hard decision for me in the sense that I've been a writer now for 20 years and I've never written about my family story. And and sometimes people would ask me when they found out about it, they'd say, how can a writer have that crazy story in his background and not have used that material? But I think for me, you know, I needed to have some distance and, and the, the plays I write, the screenplays I write, I, you know, they're they're connected to my past. They're about politics. They're about family. But um, it took me a while to think I really wanted to tackle this story head on. And honestly, the motivating factors were were really twofold. There was a personal reason and a political reason. Um, the personal reason is that my parents were getting older. My mom was about to turn 80. Um, and my kind of adopted mom or my, my adopted brother's mother, Kathy Boudin, was very ill with cancer. And I started to realize that I... Um, it might be my last chance to ask some questions that I'd had on my mind for a long time. And it was during the pandemic. And I thought I'll call them up and record some conversations. I wasn't sure I was going to turn it into a podcast or anything else. I just really had some questions I wanted to ask. And then the political reason was that we were in the middle of the Trump administration and I was dying to do something about how young people resist an authoritarian government and, and what that looks like. And are there any lessons to learn from the past? Were there some specific questions that you were had been holding in reserve that you waited to ask them while you they were on tape? Yeah, there were a lot. I mean, there were there were a couple of big questions about for me, one question I always had was, you know, after I was born, what what happened in those years between when I was born and when you turned yourself in, you know, what were, what was it like being parents underground? And I had always been told, you know, my whole life that when they had me, it changed everything and they decided to give up being violent revolutionaries and do something else. Um, and it was a big surprise to me to learn that that wasn't entirely true, that actually they had kept on kind of uh, being a part of the sort of violent or, or at least militant part of the struggle even as parents. And so that was a that was a surprise to me. So questions like that, also questions about how they were radicalized, the kinds of people they were before I knew them. Um, I'd been thinking about that for a while, but you never feel like there's the right time to dredge it all up with your family. So let's uh, back up and set the table a little bit about the the topic of the podcast. What is explain the meaning of the term mother country radicals, where that comes from? Mm -hmm. It, Mother Country Radicals is the phrase that the Black Panthers used, and in particular Fred Hampton used, to describe white radicals, and specifically the Weather Underground, my parents and their friends. And it, it, it was a term that basically meant you're radicals like us, you're revolutionaries like us, but you're children of the mother country. You're here in America. You're you know, not, not like the Tupamaros in Uruguay or the Viet Cong in Vietnam or the Black, even the Black Panthers here in America who considered themselves kind of you know, subjects of a colonial state, but you're actually children of the mother country. And so your responsibilities are different. And so I, I really liked that phrase. I liked the way Fred Hampton used it. And I think it has a kind of a funny, uh, endearing quality, but also a patronizing quality in his in his mouth. And uh, I also liked the fact that it had the word mother, the word country, the word radicals. It felt like it summed up the project I was trying to do. And for those who don't know who Fred Hampton is, just uh, explain. Fred Hampton was the young leader of the Illinois Black Panthers, um, very charismatic, very brilliant, very analytical person who was friends of my parents, in particular friends with my mom. When she was running SDS, Students for Democratic Society, they were part of Fred's rainbow coalition of activist groups. He was trying in Chicago in 1968-1969 to put together a coalition of young activist radicals of all races who could really resist the government together. Fred was then murdered by the Chicago police with the help of the FBI in um, 1970 so or 69. So he, um, you know, he became a kind of a revolutionary martyr and his death was something that really pushed my parents and many other people into further radical action because they saw uh, that the United States government was willing to murder black activists in cold blood. The police killing of black people and black leaders 
of course, resonates a lot with today. What What is the parallel that you see? Well, that was an amazing part of my research, David, is that I, I was doing these interviews um, during the pandemic, uh, you know, many times from remote studios in New York and in San Francisco and Chicago. And I was asking these radicals, white radicals and black radicals, people like Jamal Joseph, who's a Black Panther and a member of the Black Liberation Army. I was talking to them about their sort of origin stories, you know, how they had been radicalized. And in every single case, my parents, Jamal Joseph, Jihad Al-Bumumet, every story was about the killing of a black person by police. So in my mom's case, it was Fred Hampton. In Jamal's case, it was Fred Hampton and then this 10-year-old boy named Clifford Glover who was killed in Queens in 1974. And as I was having these conversations, of course, George Floyd was murdered. And suddenly we had these racial uprisings on the streets of America. And I did start to just see the parallels in a way that was quite surprising to me. I mean, I didn't set out to tell a story about police violence, but it turns out it's been there all along. <laughs> you were born underground what does that mean? What was your life like as far back <laughs> as you can remember it? Yeah, well, that, it's a lot of what the podcast is about is me trying to trying to remember it and trying to put my own thoughts in order as to, you know, how strange that life really was. Because when I was growing up, it didn't seem that strange to me. It's only in retrospect that I look back and think how weird it was to grow up underground. What it meant was it meant we used fake names outside the house. It meant we paid for everything in cash. It meant that my parents had dyed hair and, you know, my dad had facial hair that was very different than the way he'd looked before. My mom was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list and her mugshot was everywhere. So they, they were very intent on not being recognized. Um, so for me as a kid, you know, I was two, three, four, five years old. And the funny thing is my parents never hid any of this from me. I remember as a four-year-old being told that the FBI was chasing us. I remember my dad teaching me how to recognize undercover police and, and what I should tell, if I saw something like this, he, I should tell him. And so growing up underground for me, on the one hand, it felt pretty normal. It was the only life I'd ever known. Most of my friends were actually underground too. Their parents were revolutionaries, you know, members of the Black Liberation Army or the Weather Underground. So in my little world, it wasn't that strange, but of course, in retrospect, being a child growing up as a fugitive is quite a unique experience. How old were you when your parents came above ground, outed themselves, turned themselves in? I was five when they turned themselves in. And then my mom went to jail and I was about seven or eight when she got out. So, you know, it was my sort of early and mid childhood was either underground or with my mom locked up. And then eventually when she got out, um, I had a, a more normal adolescence. What did you know about the weather underground growing up? I don't think I knew much about the organization itself. I mean, I knew that my parents called themselves revolutionaries and radicals. I knew that we were fighting the government. I say we, I wasn't doing much to fight the government, but you know, our family, I knew that we were in this mode of resistance. Um, they taught, I, I say on the podcast, they, used um, sort of children's stories to explain to me what they were doing. So we talked a lot about Robin Hood and how Robin Hood was an outlaw because he was stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. And so being an outlaw wasn't necessarily a bad thing. We talked about Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia, you know, resisting an evil empire and what that was like. And so for in my childish brain, I think I just was using those comparisons and thinking, well, my parents are you know, resistance fighters. And I knew that they were doing that, but I didn't know what the weather underground was. I certainly didn't know about bombing buildings or anything. I thought about it more in terms of just living a secret life, being on the run, knowing that people were chasing us and that it was our job to um, not get caught. Take us through how your mother, Bernadine Dorn, went from an idealistic law student to, as the FBI called her, the most dangerous woman in America. <laughs> yeah, so this is what the first episode of the podcast is really about, is, is me trying to understand how she could have made that journey, that transition. I've always known her as a fiercely committed political person, a revolutionary, a radical, but of course she wasn't always that. She grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, in Whitefish Bay. Um, her dad was a 
son of immigrants, a Jewish um, businessman, kind of small, you know, lower middle class, um, sort of, I guess, small business person. And and he uh, was a Republican. He voted for Joe McCarthy. And my mom was a kind of a straight A student and a cheerleader and an all American girl. I have pictures of her tap dancing for the American Legion. So it really was this this quintessentially 1950s childhood. And then she went off to the University of Chicago um, for college and then for law school. And she started to see on TV the civil rights movement. She wanted to do something to be helpful, to help change things, but still in a very kind of liberal, progressive, like I want to be helpful student kind of way. And then what happened is Dr. King came to Chicago uh, and Martin Luther King was, was leading the rent strike here in Chicago. And my mom volunteered to be a legal uh, assistant for the rent strike. And she started marching with Dr. King and she was there at the Mark in, March in Gage Park when he was pelted with rocks and hit with a brick and knocked down by white counter protesters. Um, and then, you know, he was murdered. He was assassinated. And I think it really felt to her and a lot of people like he had tried so hard to be, you know, this avatar of nonviolence. He had tried to make change peacefully and then he was killed. And that's when, you know, she kind of started to think about what other ways forward are there. And as I said, there were other steps along the way. She ended up working with Fred Hampton, then Fred Hampton was killed. So in a way there was this kind of ongoing sense of like she was trying to partner with other black leaders and the government kept killing those leaders and it led her down a path of increasing radicalization. Hmm. And what about your dad? What led him into the weather underground? Bill Ayers. Yeah, it was a different, uh, di yeah, my, Bill Ayers. Yeah, my dad, it was a different trajectory. For him. He was a student at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, uh, got involved in the anti-war movement, um, dropped out of college. He started teaching at a freedom school in Ann Arbor. And, um, and you know, he I think teaching really turned out to be his calling. He later became a teacher after we surfaced, after we were underground. But um, the Vietnam War was really the, the main motivating force for him. And he kept thinking, you know, here I am teaching kids in America and trying to be the best teacher I can be. And overseas, my own government is killing hundreds, thousands of Vietnamese children every year. And I think it was that sense of like, I have to do more, I have to do more to help stop the war that really sent him first to SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, which was my mom's organization. And then eventually he, you know, followed her into the most radical faction of that organization, which turned into the Weathermen and then the Weather Underground. I think it's really important for people as they're hearing this story, and, and your dad articulates this, um, uh, the most... Uh, you know, it stands out in my mind. There were thousands of people dying every day in the Vietnam War. That's the backdrop to your parents' activism. So when we ask, you know, would we do it? Would you do it? Um, there is nothing comparable in our experience right now to really compare to the world that they were surrounded by. Um, how does that, does that ring true to you? It absolutely rings true. I think you have to understand, and I try to, in the podcast, I try to help people understand to put them in that context. We play a lot of archival tape of the massacre that was going on in Vietnam and, and, and frankly, the massacre that was going on here in America. I mean, we now have become attuned in the last few years to police killings of black people, but you know, hundreds of Black Panthers were being killed at the time too. So you had this kind of, you know, slaughter in Vietnam and a kind of, highly militarized attack on black freedom groups here in America. And I think it really did drive a lot of young activists over the deep end at that time. I mean, it, you're exactly right to point out that every time somebody in one of these groups would try to pull back from violence or try to kind of encourage moderation or say, we're going too far too fast, somebody else would say thousands of people are being killed in Vietnam. Every day that this war goes on, more people are dying. So so we have to do whatever we can, no matter how radical, no matter how intense. And it really did drive a lot of them towards this kind of more radical posture. One of the things that uh, really comes through in Mother Country Radicals is the very complicated relationship between the black underground and the white underground. Tell us a little bit about what you learned about that. 
Yeah, this was a surprise to me. I, I I didn't go into it completely understanding that relationship, and but it ended up feeling very central to the story I was telling, which is why the the term "mother country radicals." The reason I made it the title of the of the series is because it 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 symbolizes for me, or it kind of expresses this relationship between the black and the white underground, um, and it really was complicated. I mean, I think for my mom, certainly for both my parents, for a lot of white members of the underground. They saw the Black Panther Party as the vanguard of the revolution and a kind of example they wanted to follow. And so in the early days of, of their kind of activism, a lot of it was thinking, how can we as white activists support the Panthers? How can we do more to help them? And so certain weathermen activities like the Days of Rage protest um, came out of that desire to you know, do something to help the Panthers, to draw the attention of law enforcement away from black activists and they they it was an explicit strategy for the white underground for a long time of saying we have to do more we have to draw attention we have to put our bodies between black activists and government violence so that was one part of the relationship and then one of the interesting things that happened is the weathermen went underground first and so they had a maybe a six-month head start of learning how to make ids how to build safe houses how to get cars how to, you know, live kind of off the grid. And then when the Black Panther Party started to split into East and West Coast factions and a number of Black Panthers went underground and formed this organization called the Black Liberation Army, the Weather Underground was poised to give support, logistical support and comradeship to these new members of the underground. So a lot of it was, you know, helping make IDs, providing safe houses, providing medical care. There were stories about people you know, in the weather underground, meeting up with Black Liberation, people who needed to get medical care or who needed to give birth and figuring out how to get them to a place where they could, you know, uh, be taken care of without going to a hospital or without needing ID. So it turned into this relationship of sort of mutual solidarity and support where the Black underground and the white underground were separate, but were helping each other with um, information, supplies, and sometimes actually, you know, doing actions together. And yet there was ambivalence, uh, certainly on <laughs> the part of the of the black activists about these so-called white revolutionaries. What did you learn about that ambivalence? The yeah, there was ambivalence, and it, it carries through the entire relationship. So Fred Hampton, who you know was was supporting SDS and and the kind of more radical faction of SDS in their activities, but then after the Days of Rage protest, denounced that action as counterproductive, counterrevolutionary, said, you know, it was customistic and that they had drawn the attention of law enforcement in a way that was counterproductive. Um, so that was one kind of ambivalence. And then there was also just the ambivalence of, you know, it took a long time, I think, for people to decide they could trust one another, for people to build enough solidarity and support to say, like, it's worth actually carrying out actions together. And there was a lot of, um, you know, learning, I would say. I mean, I, I talk in the podcast about moments when the Weather Underground would do something trying to, you know, be in solidarity with the Panther 21. And then the Panther 21 would send them a letter saying, well, you know, we appreciate it and right on, but, you, you know, you have to do this other thing that you're not doing or kind of calling their attention back to the cause. So I would say in a lot of ways, the Panthers were in a relation, were in a sort of a mentoring relationship to the Weather Underground. They were trying to teach these white activists how to be helpful. And it didn't always work, but but it was an ongoing relationship that lasted decades. And many of the people I talked to, like Jamal Joseph, like Angela Davis, uh, you know, talk about how there was ambivalence, but there was also a real sense of appreciation for the um for the solidarity that was shown in both directions. Talk about the violence as a tactic. Uh, and this is essentially what caused the Weather Underground to split from Students for, Democratic, uh, Students for a Democratic Society, which was Tom Hayden and others, um, which was the SDS insistence on not using violence. So maybe take us back to why the Weather Underground split off and your mm -hmm. thoughts on their use of violence as a tactic, which in the end, I believe the only people who killed in Weather Underground violence were Weather Underground members themselves in the bomb making in Greenwich Village. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, well, that's a big question, David, but I would say a, a few things. First of all, yes, I think um, you're right. Well, okay, I'll take you back to the split with for, in SDS that, that led to the founding of Weathermen. It was partly about violence as a tactic, but it was about more than that. There were members of SDS who felt that the way forward for the movement, particularly for the white movement, was to kind of organize a class struggle, a kind of classical Marxist organizing strategy where they would go out into factories, organize workers, and that that was the way to move the movement forward. And then there were other groups, in particular my mom's uh, faction, which was called the Revolutionary Youth Movement uh, and nicknamed the Action Faction. And their basic line, it was partly about violence or at least about action, about doing more, about actually being on the streets. But it was also about, instead of uh, pursuing a kind of a Marxist, class-based, broad organizing strategy among American white working class people, their strategy was follow the leadership of what they considered the vanguard, which was, you know, third world revolutionaries overseas and the Black Panther Party here at home. So the Revolutionary Youth Movement was really founded as a solidarity organization with the Black Panthers. Their, their main prime driver was we as white activists have to put ourselves on the line to support uh, people of color in their revolutionary struggles. So that was the, the big split. But you're right that eventually the Weathermen, you know, the, their strategy involved violent tactics, bombings of government buildings, riots on the streets of downtown Chicago, prison breaks, bank robberies, things that were designed to draw attention, to uh, make a point, to make a statement, and in some cases to, you know, to really attack the American war machine. But you're right, nobody was ever killed in weather underground bombings except their own members. There was a tragic accident in a East Village townhouse in 1970 where three of them who were building a bomb blew themselves up and died, and including my dad's girlfriend at the time. Uh, and that that tragedy in many ways led to the Weathermen renouncing deadly violence as a tactic and saying, we're still going to keep up this kind of radical struggle. We're going to still make these statement bombings of government buildings and corporate headquarters, but we're going to be very careful not to hurt anybody or not to kill anybody. So they always called in warnings beforehand. They bombed buildings at night when they were empty and deserted. And they, you know, tried their best and were ultimately successful in carrying out a kind of symbolically violent struggle that never actually hurt anybody. So this became essentially armed propaganda. Um, did they at one point think that they were going to militarily confront the U.S. government <laughs> and win? It sounds crazy when you say it that way, but um, I think there was a sense, and again, you have to, as you said about Vietnam, it's important to remember the context they were living in and say, you know, they were looking around at the world and saying the Cuban government fell to a revolutionary struggle. The um, Vietnamese, you know, revolutionary movement, the resistance movement in Vietnam was on the brink of succeeding in fighting off the American war machine. And there were revolutionary movements all across the world. It seemed to be a kind of a global revolutionary moment. So, yeah, I think, did they think they were going to confront the U.S. military directly? No, I don't think so. But I do think that they thought that there had been other groups where a small, determined group of citizens committed to revolutionary struggle had succeeded in toppling a government. And they thought, not by themselves, not like the Weather Underground could take down America, but I think they thought that there was a movement building, the Black Panthers, other groups, that did have the capacity to make a revolution. It turned out that wasn't true. Were the Weather Underground terrorists? It's a it's a complicated question. I think if you look at the definition of terrorism, it has to do with using violence to terrorize a civilian population. I don't think they were terrorists because they weren't trying to hurt or kill anybody. And I think ultimately what they were trying to do is convince the government that there was a committed group of revolutionaries inside the country willing to fight back violently against the government. They never were trying to convince civilians that they were at risk. They never were trying to make people think that, you know, they might get on a bus and that bus might explode or, you know, that they might be at work and their office might explode. That being said, you know, they were bombing buildings, right? Government offices. So I think there's a fine line there between uh, sort of armed propaganda, as you said, or kind of propaganda of the deed on the one hand, and then, you know, things that really had a danger of hurting people or at least scaring people and, and convincing people that their lives were at risk. I don't think they were terrorists. And I think uh, ultimately 
you know, the people who were dying in the 1960s and 1970s were, you know, Vietnamese people overseas and black people here at home. So the terror that was being felt was really among these kind of marginalized, oppressed populations. And the terrorists at the time, the biggest terrorist was the United States government. So it's tricky. I, I don't mean to justify the kind of violent actions that, that the Weather Underground were carrying out, but I think the word terrorist is is misapplied to them. Right now, the country is watching the proceedings of the January 6th committee as they look at a, another group of insurrectionists, of people who tried to overthrow the U.S. government. Do you think it's fair to compare the Weather Underground with the January 6th insurrectionists? I think it's fair to raise the question, but I would argue that that the comparison falls apart pretty quickly. I mean, to me, it's it's it is first of all important, and and we can get into the tactics and the question of is it ever justifiable to use violence to try to overthrow a government? But I I actually do think the the ends matter, not that they justify the means, but that they matter. So it matters to me what you're fighting for. So if you compare the weathermen to the January sixth insurrectionists. The weathermen were actually fighting systemic racism and a genocidal war. The January 6th insurrectionists are white nationalists fighting for an authoritarian president who was literally sitting in the White House at that moment. So they were not a grassroots movement resisting uh, a oppressive government. They were literally a, a sort of a fascist push that was trying to keep this authoritarian president in office in you know contravening a democratic election. So I think it matters that one group was fighting for racism, one group was fighting against racism, and so on. But I think, you know, I, I certainly, like everybody else, watched the January 6th insurrection with horror. And it did make me think, is there any way to justify a small group of people thinking, you know, in a democracy that the way to move forward is to try to topple the government themselves? I think that's a thorny issue. And I, I, I do think that um, it raises big questions about who we want to be as a as a country and as a people. I would say, you know, the January 6th insurrectionists stand for nothing that I would ever support. So it's hard for me to, to kind of entertain the, the comparison in that way. Does it make you uncomfortable to have to, to, to grapple with that question, to look at the insurrectionists, today's insurrectionists and think about your parents? <laughs> I mean, I, it doesn't make me uncomfortable. I, I reject the comparison. What it makes, it makes me thoughtful about, you know, is there any time when we, we should be able to, to kind of feel so self-righteous in our own ideology that we should seek to impose it as a small minority of people on other people? You know, so I, I, I tend to believe that, you know, democracy, while flawed, is the best system we have and that, you know, kind of trying to make political change outside that democracy is a very dangerous game. That being said, you know, you look at history and there are times when you would say that violent resistance was called for, whether that's in, you know, resistance France during World War II or whether it's, you know, Nat Turner or John Brown fighting against slavery. There are times when the government becomes so oppressive that resisting it violently is not only acceptable, but necessary. In the course of your interviews, um, not all your questions get answered. There are still secrets. What couldn't your parents and their colleagues tell you? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I, I would say I answer a lot more questions than have been answered before. And, the, and one of the things that was interesting is I think a lot of people were more willing to talk to me than they've been willing to talk to any journalists or documentarians before because I'm in the family, because I'm in some way born into the underground and the organization. So a lot of, I found a lot of surprises. And I think for most people, even people who know this history, there are a lot of surprises in the series. A lot of questions do get answered, but you're right. There are certain things that people are still unwilling to talk about. And they're primarily, you know, they still have a kind of a code of silence in the underground. So if there are outstanding questions of who planted a bomb in what place or at what time, People won't talk about that. They have a, a very serious code about not informing on comrades, even 50 years later, not telling, you know, tactical secrets about how things happened and, and, and you know, names and places and dates. Uh, so, yeah, there were secrets in that sense. But I think in a, in a deeper sense, people were, were very open about what 
about their own feelings about the time, about what had happened, about what they had done. And I'll tell you, David, one of the funny things was very, very rarely was somebody unwilling to tell me something about themselves. Almost all the time when I hit a wall, it was because they were unwilling to tell me about someone else. And so, it, you know, the interview process involved a lot of asking one person something and then going and finding the person who they were unwilling to tell me about and asking that person. And that person would usually tell me if it was about them. So, it, it, you know, they were they were willing to talk if you were persistent and, and willing to ask those questions. One of the most powerful parts of the series is when you speak with your counterparts, other children of radical activists. Um, one that stands out is your interview with Kukuya Shakur, the daughter of Asada Shakur, who is still living in exile in Cuba um, and is periodically trotted out uh, in popular culture, most re recently by Donald Trump as someone who we should uh, you know, hate anew and call for her extradition to the United States. Um, talk about the inheritance, as you call it, the legacy, the perhaps the weight on you on this next generation uh, for your parents' activism. Yeah, well, I'm glad you found that interesting. I It was certainly for me very interesting to talk to people of my generation, um, partly because I think we shared a lot of experiences being born into the underground and also the kind of trauma and sacrifices that our families made, um, you know, for the cause. So I, my mom went to jail for a couple of years. In some ways, I got off easy. Kakuya's mom, Asada Shakur, as you said, is still underground decades later, still living in exile in Cuba. Uh, my brother, Chesa Boudin, who we adopted when his parents were arrested in a joint action with the Black Liberation Army, his mom did 22 years in prison. His dad did 40 years in prison. And so, you know, in some ways, all of us children of the underground, we, you know, grew up in, in, in families that were shattered by that struggle. So one of the things that was interesting was talking to them about that history, that pain, the things they went through, what that did to their relationships with their parents. But the inheritance that you're talking about and that I spend a lot of time thinking about in the show is, you know, there's this cliche that the children of leftists, the children of hippies end up becoming stockbrokers and turn to the right and become Republicans. And that's not my experience at all. Most of the revolutionary kids I know, uh, you know, very few of them are underground and I guess none of them are underground. But, you know, most of us are writers, activists, lawyers, teachers, uh, journalists, and in some way trying still to change the world for the better. So. The inheritance is kind of understanding the flaws that our parents had, the mistakes they made, but also ultimately being inspired by their struggle and trying in our own way to move the country and the world forward. Is it a burden in any way? Um, the thought that your parents gave it, were willing to give their lives, as they themselves say, to improve a broken world and now there's you and the coming of you and your brothers really marked the point where they had to make different choices. What does that feel like? You know, for me, I mean, I would say it took me a while to work through it. You know, when you're a kid and your mom goes to jail, you spend a lot of time thinking about why she made those choices. And, you know, did she not care enough about me to keep herself safe and things like that? So, you know, you do, and certainly for, for my brother Chesa or for Kukuya, whose family made, made bigger sacrifices, they spent much of their childhood and adolescence, you know, really thinking about those questions. You know, was it worth it? What did my mom do? What did she do to me? Why wasn't I her priority? You know, and asking these big, difficult questions. But I don't feel it as a burden. I feel it as, you know, as an inheritance, as, as something that was, you know, I was born into, like anybody, you're born into a family, you don't choose that family, and you have to take from your birth and your childhood what you can. So you learn from it, you try to take from it what is useful. And and in my case, I would say I feel it was, it was difficult in some ways, but ultimately I feel very grateful that my parents and their friends showed us this example, again, a flawed and messy example, but an example of people really willing to make great sacrifices in pursuit of justice. 
I'm wondering, this you are creating this podcast at the same time that your brother, Chesa Boudin, who is the district attorney of San Francisco, was undergoing a very nasty and vicious recall campaign. Mm -hmm. um, was it difficult for him to participate? What were his feelings about participating in this? He's a public figure. Everything he says or does is under a microscope. It didn't... Um, I didn't miss the fact that he only appears once on tape in this. Um, what can you say about that? Well, I would say, yes, he had a very busy job and then a very difficult and busy second political campaign as I was working on this project. But, you know, we're family and we're very close and we talk all the time. And he was very open with me and, and willing to talk. I mean, we joked about the fact that when I talked to him, you know, at first he was giving me the same answers he was giving on the, uh, you know, on the campaign trail. You know, I would say, what was it like to lose your mother? And he would say, well, let me tell you about mass incarceration. And I would say, no, 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 I, I need I need the personal history. This is not uh, I'm not doing a political story here. This is a series about human beings and about what we all went through and trying to really get at the heart of the story. And I would say to his credit, he was very willing to kind of be honest and to be heartfelt. And he you know, it's, it's, I think my interviews with him are very emotional and, and difficult, but very honest. And, um, you know, he knew that the, the show might come out while he was in, in office, but I think he's not that kind of politician. You know, he's a very he's he's a pretty authentic person and pretty clear and open about what it is that he thinks is important. I think he felt like being honest with me was both something he wanted to do for me and also something that was just part of his political work, which is trying to teach people about, you know, what incarceration does to people and families. What is he doing now that he's been recalled? I think he's taking, uh, you know, a minute to, this was only a month ago, so I think he's taking a, a few weeks. He's got a new baby and a wife, and, and he's, you know, taking some time after the busyness of the campaign to kind of recharge and regroup. But I think he has, also has a lot of opportunities to continue his work in whatever way he wants to, you know, he might run again for DA. The election is in, you know, November, and this person who has been appointed to replace him is not has never been elected, and and in some ways he should get to finish out his term. So I think he's considering another run. But I think if he doesn't do that, he'll write a book or be a law professor or be an activist and kind of continue to work for the same sorts of goals he was working on as a, a public official. One of the uh, memorable stories is uh, the story of Chase's mother, her biological mother, Kathy Boudin. Um, she participated in an armed robbery with her uh, partner. I don't know if it was her husband at the time. Um, with Chase home with a babysitter. I mean, the, the details of that, you know, a lot of this, this was 50 years ago. And I mean, the details of that are just incredible. And you were asking her what was she thinking heading you know leaving the, her son with a babysitter and heading out for uh an armed robbery perhaps she didn't know it was going to be an armed robbery can you just tell a little bit about what you learned about that yeah well i think she did know it was going to be an armed robbery i think one of the amazing things and of course this is a story i've known my whole life and have been grappling with my whole life and i think chasa also has been grappling with it is that these were people who they were they were loving parents. They were good people. They were idealistic people. And yet they made the decision to leave their 14 month old son with a babysitter and go out and help rob a bank. And we can look back at that now and think like that is that is incredible and and crazy. And I think they would they would cop to that at this point. I mean, Kathy had 20 years in prison to think about the horrible mistake that she made, you know, not only horrible because she lost her freedom and lost her son, but also three people were killed in that robbery. This was not a Weather Underground action. It was after the Weather Underground had already been dissolved. But, you know, it was her and some other former weathermen and then members of the Black Liberation Army that had decided to rob this van. And when things went wrong, uh, there was a firefight and police officers were killed in the shooting. So people went to, to prison for, for decades and sometimes, you know, in some cases for the rest of their lives, there are people still serving time uh, for that robbery. So, you know, I think, yeah, part of what I was interested in as a storyteller and as a 
historian and as a journalist was how can somebody make that decision? You know, how can a new mother decide it's more important to go out and rob this bank than stay home with her kid? And I think, again, to Kathy's credit, um, she was very willing to be open with with me about her own regret, her own mistakes, her own complicated psychological processes that that pushed her in that direction and kind of convinced her uh, that it was an acceptable thing to do. She talks a lot about the denial that she was in and, and kind of the feeling that, well, other revolutionaries have kids and continue to be revolutionaries. And so I can do that. And she, I think, never really stopped to think if this goes wrong, I'm not only ruining my own life, but, you know, potentially ruining my son's life. There is a remarkable exchange. I I, I hope this isn't, um, you know, a uh, stealing the ending here, but <laughs> where your daughter confronts your father, Bill Ayers, um, and you clearly, I'm, I can almost picture it, you just put your phone on record and set it on the yeah. table and let this thing rip. Yeah. Talk about the exchange between your teenage daughter and your father. <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was one of these kind of fortuitous moments when you're working on a project and you're writing something. I was really wrestling with the last episode and how I wanted to end this story and what it all meant and what I wanted to say about it. And, you know, we were all having dinner, my daughters and my parents and my wife and my daughter, who was 13 at the time, and my father, who was, I don't know, 78 at the time, were getting in this argument about John Brown. She was studying John Brown at school and, and the raid on Harper's Ferry and the, the fight against slavery. And they started arguing over dinner. And as you said, David, I just, you know, I, I realized in the middle of it, wow, this is gold. I have to get this on tape. And I pressed record on my phone and slid it secretly into the middle of the table. And they were having an argument about whether it was acceptable that John Brown would sacrifice himself and his sons because John Brown brought his sons with him as adult sons on you know to the raid on Harper's Ferry and some of them died and 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 some of them were executed with him um and and my daughter thought that was crazy she thought it was crazy to sacrifice your family for an abstract idea and my dad being my dad was like well that's it's it'd be crazy to look at slavery and say well there's nothing we can do we have to protect our own families so we should just let slavery be so they were having this argument which really got at the central question i was trying to ask with the podcast which is you know how do you balance your commitment to yourself and your family and your loved ones with your commitment to making a better world by any means necessary and so it felt like they had distilled my big you know existential questions into this dinner time argument and yeah, we ended up using it as kind of the the final moments of the series because it really said a lot to me about generations and sacrifice and what we take from our parents and our grandparents. And I think your daughter concluded by telling him, well, that's stupid. Yeah, that's Do crazy. I, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> what do you know about your parents now that you didn't know when you started this? Well, a bunch of things. I would say I, the detail was all I, all new to me. I mean, you know, when you're a kid, the stories you know about your family, even as, as an adult, you know what you kind of absorbed growing up. And they're kind of big generalities and big sense of kind of, oh, I think I know my parents were from Wisconsin or something like that. So for me, filling in the gaps and the details was revelatory. I didn't know a lot of things about how my mom grew up, about how she became who she became. Certainly for me, that that was a big revelation was like learning about uh, the person my mom was as a 25 year old and a 21 year old um, and a revelation, frankly, from my daughters, you know, they, when they've been listening to the podcast and to hear their grandma at 26 and the fierce kind of committed revolutionary she was then they've been blown away by that. So there's those kind of revelations. I would also say for me, the complexity of the context that they were living in, you know, uh, I'll give you one example, learning about the townhouse explosion and the death of my dad's girlfriend at the time, Diana Alton, really changed my sense of how my parents got together, how they fell in love, what the other possibilities were like, you know, if Diana hadn't died, it's quite possible that they never would have gotten together and I never would have been born. So for me, those kinds of, you know, as a kid, looking at your parents, it, it is fascinating to find these times when 
you know, your very contingent existence depended on these large political forces that were shaping their lives at the time. What do you think your parents' activism accomplished? I think in the, in the long sweep of it, I would say that they accomplished more in the last 40 years of kind of, you know, peaceful activism. My mom for decades ran the Children and Family Justice Center in Chicago, which defended, uh, you know, juvenile offenders or, or people accused of crimes in the juvenile court system. My dad spent decades as an education reformer and a teacher. So I think in that sense, their activism accomplished a great deal here in Chicago in terms of, you know, building a better and more just system here in a small way. In terms of the Weather Underground, I would say, you know, it's hard to look back at history and say they were responsible for this change or they helped do this. I do think that in a broad sense, the American anti-war movement helped end the war in Vietnam. And, you know, there are some people who think that there were the good activists, you know, the peaceful people marching on the streets and then the bad activists who were, you know, doing more violent actions. I don't really see it that way. I think the Black Panthers, the Weather Underground, the Black Liberation Army were on the extreme edge of a vast and powerful movement that was fighting to end an unjust war in America. And I think all of the activists involved in that, the peace activists and the radical activists, can take some credit for ending that war. I also think, you know, in terms of the solidarity they showed with Black activist groups, I don't know that it accomplished anything in terms of, you know, ending systemic racism in America. But what I find fascinating about their story now is that it really does give us a template for what it looks like when white people truly and actually decide to put themselves on the line to fight racism. And I think that kind of comradeship, that sort of sense of we are in this together and we have to fight together to end injustice is something that we can all learn from today. So I don't think it's accomplished its goal yet, but I think it's one part of a long struggle towards making this a better country. Well, Zaid Erstorn, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. It was great talking to you.